Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg with the Remnant Podcast. Uh, we have an exciting, I don't know if it's exciting, I hope it gets exciting show to you, for you today uh, with our guest, Megan McCardle, who's not yet in the studio. I just want to do a little quick housekeeping up front. I normally say this at the end, but if you're subscribing to this podcast or you're getting this podcast from the National Review website, bully for you. That's great. Thank you for listening. But it'd be better for me, for the environment, for crop yields, if you instead subscribed at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever fine or even crappy podcasts um, are hosted because those numbers help us in all sorts of important ways and prevent us from having to sacrifice more bulls to ball. And if you like this podcast, uh, please leave a review at iTunes or any one of those places. If you don't like this podcast, please email me your home address so we can leave a burning bag of dog crap on your front door. No, I'm just kidding. But um, You have plenty of dog crap. I do. I have almost an infinite <laughs> supply of canine uh, Paul Krugman columns. And um, Pippa makes her podcast appearance. <laughs> <laughs> and um, also, I asked Jack before we started whether or not we could announce that my personal website, jonagoldberg.com, will be up and live next week. And I asked him if we could announce that, and Jack said, well, you can announce it, and it'll make my life a lot harder, and I'll have to actually get it ready um, or get it get it up. And I said, well, then why don't we do that? And so I've made Jack's life harder. But hopefully next week it'll be up there, and it'll be a good central clearing house for occasional notes and asides from, from me, announcements about speaking gigs, media appearances, and all things related to the great and glorious uh, book tour, which is coming up in April. Uh, this week's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by Tripping, Tripping.com, the one-stop shopping place for all of your uh, home away, home rental, vacation rental, beach rental, mountain rental, uh, assassination missions when you're in foreign lands rental uh, website. It's at Tripping.com, and we'll tell you more about that later. So we got a little time before Megan McArdle gets here. For those of you who don't know, Megan McArdle is a writer for Bloomberg. She's a, an OB, an original blogger. Um, I remember well her in the old days. And uh, before she gets here, I figured we would just chat a little bit about uh, the news of the day. Is there any news of the day to chat about? Uh, I know that you didn't want to do Rank Punnetry, but today is uh, Memo-Geddon, Memo-Pocalypse, our Memo-Geddon, I don't know, whatever. Um, oh, yes. So the memo is coming out, right? Or allegedly coming out. The Nunez memo thing, it's getting, you know, it's getting uh, memo dramatic and memo physical in Washington. And I, I know I don't do rank punditry here. I try. No, I, every now and then I do rank punditry, I'll be honest. But I try to avoid it because I think people are sick of it. But a little punditry about the rankness might be in order. Um, I find this whole spectacle repugnant. Let's start from the beginning. I have absolutely no problem investigating Hillary Clinton, saying that Hillary Clinton clearly did bad things with her server and her emails. And I, and, and if the FBI, for political reasons, slow walked that or turned a blind eye or was politicized, by all means, let's get that out there. Let's send people to jail. Fine. I have no problem with any of that. I have been you know, people who think I'm pro-Hillary now because I'm against some of the stuff that the Republicans are doing. I mean, I have better bona fides as an anti-Clinton pundit than almost any person on the respectable – I mean, even on the irrespectable right. I mean, I, I you know, I, I've made my bones 
on on the subject. I have been on record saying that you know Bill Clinton is going to spend eternity in hell alongside Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance, and the cast of Cats. I have no problem throwing the Clintons under the bus. And for as much as I talk about how Trump corrupts everything, um, and he corrupts a lot, this whole spectacle that we're seeing is further proof of how much the Clintons corrupt everything that they touch. If Hillary Clinton had simply not thought of herself as above the law, there would be no narrative here about the server. It was outrageous that the Democrats would even nominate her on the merits, never mind nominate someone who was under FBI investigation. That used to be something that would disqualify you from public office. I agree for the most part with Andy McCarthy that Hillary Clinton was never the fix was in for her and all that because Obama was never going to allow an FBI investigation of Hillary Clinton because it would implicate him as well because he knew about what she was doing. Fine. Say, go after all that. Release all the FISA application stuff. Release the steel or the steel memos or dossiers already out. Fine. But at the end of the day, 90% of what the Republicans are doing here is simply trying to blur everything up, to mess everything up, to make it so that you can't notice any distinctions and get as much crap on the shoes of Robert Mueller as possible so that they can justify a pretext for Donald Trump to fire Mueller or fire Rod Rosenstein if he doesn't fire Mueller. And that's what they're trying to do is get Rod Rosenstein to out of the way because Rod Rosen, Rosenstein, Rosenstein, Frankenstein, Frankenstein, who gives a rat's ass? It's like my Goldberg or Goldberg. Is it, It's purely a pretext there. And the simple fact is, None of the – all of the smoke and mirrors about the FISA court, about frickin' Carter Page, about um, the pay the, – the, 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 the struck text, all of that stuff has nothing to do with Robert Mueller. Robert Mueller was in private practice. He was – he was uh, – when all of this stuff went down, he was the retired FBI director appointed by George W. Bush. He was a patriot. He was a – he was a war veteran. There is literally zero of any of this smoke and mirror stuff. Any of this gaslighting has nothing to do with Robert Mueller. It just simply has to do with Donald Trump trying to get someone in place at the Department of Justice who will fire Robert Mueller. And it's grotesque what's happening. And what I cannot believe, right, so again, this memo thing, who knows? I mean, this is one of the reasons why I don't do punditry here too much is because the news changes so fast these days that the shelf life on conversations almost evaporates. And so, like, if you listen to the commentary podcast, which is great at summarizing the news, sometimes by the afternoon the podcast comes out, the, the events have changed on it. But as I understand it from all of the reporting, the, the, the memo is basically about how the Obama administration used the Steele dossier to get a FISA warrant to surveil Carter Page, who was at the, at the time an unpaid flack foreign, quote-unquote, foreign policy advisor working for the Trump administration, the only re- the Trump uh, campaign. The only reason he was working for the Trump campaign in the first place is because the Trump campaign couldn't get any quality people to work for it at the sort of policymaking level. And so they had to basically drag these gill nets along the bottom of various swamps and pull up what dregs they could. And up came Carter Page. And so Trump, who had no idea, I take him in his word now that he had no idea who he was, was touting him as a very close advisor back in the old days because he just needed window dressing to prove that he actually had serious people working for him. So anyway, this guy, Carter Page, is was supposedly, allegedly, unduly surveilled, inappropriately surveilled because the Obama administration used, to some extent or another, the Steele dossier in order to surveil this guy or get a warrant to surveil this guy. Left out of all of this mud-flinging, fog-spewing nonsense is that 
Carter Page had basically been walking around with one of those like Depression era sandwich boards saying, we'll work for the Russians. I'm walking around Europe for years before Trump ever thought about running for president. The, 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 the CIA and the Department of Justice was looking at Carter Page since 2013, 2014. And the, and he's a sketchy, sketchy guy who manages with almost yoga master-like skill to step on his own Johnson every time he talks to somebody in the press. And so the idea now is that somehow we're all supposed to be outraged that the FISA court used the Steele dossier in part to get a warrant to spy on a member of Trump's campaign. Maybe it was wrong to use the Steele dossier, but clearly they had other reasons to want to monitor this guy because he's a sketchy guy who has who has long-standing efforts to to undermine U.S. national security, or at least there was long-standing suspicions about it. And now we're all supposed to die on this hill. We're supposed to plant a freaking flag in Carter Page's corpse and say this far and no farther, and be outraged by by how the the Leviathan deep state went after, try to surveil this guy, it makes no sense. And even so, it still has nothing to do with Robert Mueller. All right, end of rant. Sorry about that. Wow, that was that was pretty rank. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I didn't bring up Quinnipiac polls, and I did not bring up the crucial Waukesha County. So it doesn't qualify as purely rank punditry. <laughs> well, until just now. Now you've brought them both up. Oh, you see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> what is the Latin word for saying you're not going to bring up something and then you bring it up? Oh, praetoritio, praetorition. Which you have to admit, Donald Trump is a master of. Yes. I'm not going to say he's a child molester, but, you know, nod, nod, (laughs) wink, wink. All right, so. What an intro for Megan. Yeah, no, I'm sorry about that, Megan. And and poor Megan wasn't even here to hear it, so I I, I won't ask her to comment on it. She's coming shortly. Um, You know, it's difficult for Megan to get here because... She has to walk hunched over so she doesn't hit her head on streetlights. She's very, very tall. She's a tall lady. Um, she's not James Comey tall, but she's tall. And uh, I will ask her about that because that's the kind of burning questions that we need to ask on this podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, let's go find Megan and bring her in here. And I apologize for the rant for people who don't want to hear that kind of stuff. It's just I'm, you know, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills some days. You're, you're mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore. Yeah, and I, I probably, since this is only the second lady who's coming in for this podcast, I probably shouldn't have torn off my shirt like a wolf man while I was making that rant because uh, it's going to be a little awkward for her now. The the short the shirt came off itself Hulk like because you just you just expanded yeah. out of it in your rage. Yes, it's Pun- not your fault. Punditry mad, <laughs> Jonah destroy. All right, so we'll go get Megan, and we'll get started, and thanks, everybody, for listening. All right, so we have uh, Megan McArdle. Um, she is, as I mentioned earlier, an, an OB, an original blogger. Of course, I had been, you know, I had already earned my scars and made my bones by the time she joined in what two thousand one. Yes, I was, uh, <laughs> I was a late late bloomer. So actually, I, I never read people's bios, and I'm really bad about this kind of th- thing. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you're currently Bloomberg View columnist. I currently am a Bloomberg uh, with my friend and colleague Ramesh Panuru and other Indeed, notable and, people, and many other fine fine writers. Yes, all readers should check us out. You know, forty to sixty times a day. Yeah, there you go. And and if and if you can't check it out, you should set up like a cocaine study monkey that just keeps hitting refresh. Absolutely. But you started out doing a basically a 
world, what was it, WTC block? Live from the WTC. I graduated from business school in 2001, had a job lined up as a management consultant, which uh, at a firm which promptly blew up. And literally, not not literally. Okay. No, they uh, just they, in the context of the World they, Trade Center. Yes, yeah, sorry, they're, they're <laughs> were poorly chosen words. Uh, no, they they were they specialized in technology, and 2001 was a bad time to be a management consultant who uh, specialized in technology. So they went under. And then um, went to pets.com. Uh, no, they, I think they'd already gone by, the, by that time. But uh, I ended up so in the supreme irony of my life as a libertarian columnist, my father is, was a lobbyist, and what he lobbied for was the heavy construction industry in New York. And you know, if you're going to be a lobbyist, as lobbies go, like in fact, we are going to build roads and bridges. Sure, the government's probably going to do that. Those are the construction companies that my dad lobbied for. But one of his clients had literally been working across the street from the World Trade Center when the buildings came down. Uh, on the West Side Highway. And so they just picked up their equipment, moved it across the West Side Highway, and frantically started trying to move rubble to get people out. And they yeah. had engineers. I mean, they, they did it safely. They're a very good company. But they needed people to just help out in the construction trailer. I had no job. I went down there for what was supposed to be a couple of weeks. It turned into a year. And while I was there, I would have a lot of downtime, and I had an AOL connection. Mm-hmm. And I would uh, I wrote this blog called Live from the WTC. And that was my my very first. I never had, unlike everyone else in Washington who works in journalism, I'd never had any dreams at all of being a journalist, which is probably good because I I went to Penn as an undergraduate. And there were actually three people in my class, as far as I know, who became professional journalists. Mm -hmm. Guess who the other two were? (laughs) <laughs> Stephen Glass. Nice. <laughs> and Sabrina Rubin Erdley, who wrote the UVA, the, yeah, 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 the yeah. widely debunked UVA uh, story, gang rape stories. So um, I think I, I escaped their their malevolent influence, or I hope whatever malevolent influence turned them towards the dark side, I, I escaped that by having no interest in journalism. But that was how I got my start. It's funny. My, um, my brother, just so listeners know, uh, now um, my late brother died a few years ago. He was in the—I grew up in New York City. We both grew up in New York City. We'll get to that in a bit. On 9-11, he was just like, oh, oh crap, and went down there. And he had, a, um, he had worked for a while as a cab driver, as a tow truck driver, and as a fish delivery guy at Fulton Fish Market. And A jack of all trades. Yeah, no. And uh, so he just went down there and said, how can I help? And ended up—I mean, it's, I was always—he ended up driving—I mean, it's grim, one of the morgue buses, you know, where they would put mm-hmm. the, body back, the bodies in— and and just got sucked into it and did it for days on end. And he had no special clearance or anything to do it. But since he got there early before yep. the thing had become bureaucratized. I was in charge of bureaucratizing our company. So <laughs> you might have seen them. Well, they, they told us we needed to have badges for yeah. all our employees. And like the other three companies that were there were kind of bigger concerns. This is a local Queens construction company. And they didn't have badges for their employees. So I literally just went, walked up to Staples and bought a laminator and some photo paper, and yeah. I designed badges. <laughs> I made all of the badges to, uh, and, and did a bunch of the compliance stuff to get people within that. Yeah, but it was yeah. it was chaos the first few days. Yeah, and, and yeah. I helped, which in it, a small way manage the chaos. Which, in a funny, weird way, I didn't plan on talking about this, but this is like one of these. Um, you know, Mansur Olson talks about one way you can leapfrog past the sort of uh, sclerosis of bureaucratized mm-hmm. society is through total defeat and war, right? Yes. And then everyone has to 
the path dependence is all gone and you create new systems to deal with things. And that was sort of like a little microcosm example of that, yeah. right? You know? Absolutely. And it, things were, it was, it was an amazing time to be down there. Yeah, I hadn't, uh, it was, it was really, I mean, and some of the things were, are sort of funny, nice memories, like yeah. the fact that there were no, they blocked off the whole downtown. And so we all have these things called gators. They're kind of little, like sort of like, tractor jeep golf carts and people would drive you know one wrong way down one-way streets and so forth and then you would leave and you would drive home because i my dad was down there every day there's so much to do with getting stuff for the government figuring out how they were gonna cover insurance for the workers and so forth and so we would drive home at night and if you weren't careful you would start driving the wrong way on one-way streets because you were just now (laughs) so used to um and then of course also just a lot of immensely sad i I remember walking around and looking at all of the the rubble and there was that iconic uh big shard of metal that always gets photographed that you see and i remember staring at it and like it just still didn't feel real it felt like a movie set you couldn't believe the terrible thing that had happened and it was still going on Okay, now that we've opened with some cheery, mm. cheery stuff, uh, you then became, and this is all just to get through your bio. Yes. Um, <laughs> well. You became a blogger by the pen name. Uh, Jane Galt. One and zero name of Jane Galt. But you're not, in fact, a hardcore Randian, right? No, no, I never was. It's, uh, so the genesis of that name is funny. In 1995... I would, you know, when these interwebs things were new and exciting, uh, the New York Times had, like, you know, a forum of some sort, or maybe it was comments in their articles. I don't really remember. But there's this one guy, I can't remember his, his screen name, everyone who was to the right of, like, Chairman Mao, mm-hmm. he would open his response to them by calling them a randroid. <laughs> and he wanted to, he had said something that I wanted to respond to. And then I went to respond and I realized, and said, you need to create, you know, a screen, a screen name and so forth. And I thought, oh, this will make him mad. <laughs> and so uh, I, that was my screen name. And then I got it as my email address because, you know, I, I remembered it. And then, you know, there's a lot of path dependence there. And, of course, it's it, I, it, people can be totally forgiven for thinking that I was uh, a uh, an objectivist. But I've never been an objectivist. It was just sort of a twee joke. Um, I'm more of a moderate libertarian. I, like, I, you know, I... I like Ayn Rand in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. I think she's good at some things, really good at some things, like a sort of comic book romanticism that I find very appealing about like being your best self in the Oprah phrase. But I also think that her mental model of how human beings work was just tragically and just obviously flawed and didn't even vaguely apply to the way she herself lived. And I don't know why she ever thought anyone else would live that way. But. Do you mean just in terms of like objectivist man is homo economicus kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, the, the most obvious thing, I think, is that she has, uh, in Atlas Shrugged, you know, she has this heroine who is an idealized version of herself, clearly. And the woman loves three men and the two who, she eventually ends up with John Galt, the right. hero of the book. But the two men who have gone before are like, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, I still love you because you have to love the highest thing. And like, <laughs> like no, that's not, that's not how people work, right? right. We get upset. When, when people, when we love people and they don't love us back. And, and you know, you can sort of accept it, right? You can sort of say, well, no, they, I don't have a right to their love, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and you, I would still like to be friends with them or whatever. But in the end, you're, you're still going to be pretty shattered. And indeed, she then announced to her husband and the wife of uh, one of her young acolytes 
that they were going to conduct an affair because since they were the two most highly realized objectivists, <laughs> right, that did not end well. And he eventually left her for a much younger woman. I mean, she was in her 50s when this happened. He was right. in his late 20s or early 30s. And uh, he eventually left her for a much younger woman, and she was enraged and expelled him, which is what normal human beings right, do right, when right. things like that happen, right? And the fact that they just expected their spouses to go along with this was really incredible, right? And so I, I think, yeah, man is not homo economicus. She had a very, very crude mental model of the world, which is not how people actually work. But other things about her, she's really good at describing industrial decline. She's yeah. really good at describing, but she also has this kind of... I admire her, the vision of the part of her work that is the vision about attempting to be heroic in your own life, right? Like attempting to live your life as a hero. I think that's great. I don't think that that necessarily means that like the graduated income tax is, is, right, right. is, is slavery, but right. uh, I, do, I do admire that. I mean, heroicism for a, someone who believes in homo economicus can be kind of creepy, kind of heroics, right? You know. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? She ends up heroicizing is things like figuring out how to make a new kind of metal. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like you know, being really good at running oil rigs. That's you know, that's great. And and you know, I I think we should I think we should valorize all sorts of work. You know, there oh, I agree with that. Hero, hero, the heroics of managing a call center, right? I mean, the so there's that part I really admire. You know, it's it's somewhat unfitted for today's modern service economy, but. I you know I do admire that part of her philosophy. I just don't the the kind of like I am an island and I have no unchosen obligations to anyone else. I just I think that is neither realistic nor appealing or moral as a way of uh, of thinking about the world. But it does appeal to teenage boys in particular. Indeed, right? yeah. indeed, I mean, sort of very like much. The golden age of science fiction is sixteen. <laughs> um, I still read science fiction at my advanced age. So I, 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 I like. Science I resent fiction too. that remark. No, 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 no. Um, I like it too. All right, so clearly we're not going to get through your whole bio because we're going to keep stopping. I'm on, sorry. On the, no, it's my fault. That, I'm an inveterate digressor. Um, that's what this whole podcast is for, is digression. In fact, it might have been a better title than Remnant is the digression. <laughs> it's it's sort of every conversation ends like the uh, Russian and the Pinewood Barons and the Sopranos. You just sort of I've actually resolve. never seen the Sopranos. You're a bad person. I, my husband frequently, who is a, a movie critic on the side – Frequently uh, threatens to divorce me over the massive holes in my uh, my cultural knowledge. You're a lacunae? Indeed. Uh, so my wife has never watched The Sopranos, but she does it on um, principle. She does not like the glorification of organized crime. Fair enough. I think she's wrong, and I've, I'm slowly trying to pull her in. So I got her to watch The Godfather, which she now likes. And I'm like, okay, well, you're done now. You've seeded the principle. Yes. You know, now um, we're just arguing over the price. Exactly. Um, although we probably shouldn't carry that too far. We're talking about my wife. Um, and it's the old <laughs> Churchill line, right? Sorry. I, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, we're going to get the import most important thing out of the way. You are among the things that we have in common, besides digression and a propensity to just keep drinking liquids in the studio – is uh, you're a um, quasi-irrational dog person. I, I would say my, I would defend my love of my dog as entirely rational, all 170 pounds of him. And, uh, and you know, I spent last evening steam cleaning the rug after he dragged our uh, our kitchen garbage can down the hall and upset it all over our living room floor. And I, I think that was a splendid way to spend it. <laughs> 
I can't think of anything I would rather have done, really, than get down on my hands and knees. And so he, he weighs 170 pounds? He weighs 170 pounds. And the amazing thing for listeners who don't know is he's a chihuahua. <laughs> he's the biggest chihuahua The anyone. world's biggest chihuahua. He actually is. He was supposed to be 130. And then he was big for – that's the breed standard. And then he was big and she was like, he might get up to 150. You should be prepared for that. Yeah. <laughs> blew past that like he's a little fat and, so, uh, and we're trying to diet him but also he's and he's a mastiff enormous. right he's a bull mastiff yeah, yeah. yeah which are fantastic dogs they are amazing dogs they are like big walking sofas with amazing personalities yeah. and they're just this is my second bull mastiff third if you count the one we had partial custody of my mother's who yeah. would frequently come stay at our house and the, i would not want to have another breed yeah they're just great so this raises one of my great p i i i've Driven cross country with dogs many times now. Mm-hmm. Stayed in many hotels, and things are so much better than they were in terms oh, of being able to travel with dogs and staying in hotels with dogs. I mean, they were really bad, but there is still this pervasive. And I think it's partly because hotels desperately want to get the women with purse dogs um, as customers, <laughs> right? So they have these weight limits at like you know no charge for dogs. Dogs allowed up to thirty pounds or something like that. Right. And the thing is. A Mastiff or a Newfoundland or a Great Dane are probably less likely to destroy a hotel room than a Jack Russell Terrier. Indeed. You know, I mean, some of those little terrier dogs just, they, they go snurfling through couches like mole people, you know? And <laughs> meanwhile, you know, a Newfoundland is basically just a portable couch. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. Uh, they are like, you know, my dog will get into stuff. It really, the I, I like to say, you know, the, every century has its great romance, the one that dwarfs all other loves in its, its breadth and depth. Uh, and the love affair between my dog and our kitchen trash can is, <laughs> is the is the love of the 21st century. Not very Randian. It's no, <laughs> but he is. You know, other than that, he's not destructive at all. Yeah. You know. So you probably shouldn't keep a kitchen garbage can in your hotel room. We are renovating our house, our uh-huh. kitchen, basically around the need to keep the dog out of the, tr- the kitchen trash. And what's his name? Uh, Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. Yes. All of my dogs have literary names. Uh, his his uncle was Bartleby. Uh-huh. And, uh, the Scrivener. The Scrivener. Uh-huh. Or my favorite, my favorite short story. Um, and my first bull mastiff was Finnegan. I like it. Boy, that sounds unbearably precious when I say it out loud. It seems much cuter when you just give them the names. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're uh, – how does, how does he get along with other dogs? Uh, so he has a tragedy in his life. He was born with something called Wobbler's Syndrome, which uh-huh. is where your um, your neck vertebrae don't grow right and they start compressing your spinal cord. And so when he was 14 uh, months old, he had to have the top four – the tops of four of his cervical vertebra removed and mm-hmm. then they stitched the muscle over. It's called a laminectomy. And because of that, he is never allowed to play with other dogs. And my dog no. – bull mastiffs are – you know, they they need they normally tell you they need to be socialized so that they'll be friendly with other dogs. That's not my dog's problem. Mm. My dog is like the world's friendliest dog, and he's not allowed to socialize with other dogs at all ever. And it's like for it's fear so they'll sad. jump up or yeah, it, yeah. Basically, if he gets rolled, he could be paralyzed. Oh, so it's you know, he has a sort of much quieter life than he would like. He loves other dogs. He's yeah. wonderful with other dogs. He just is not allowed to be. And he was allowed to be around his uncle, who is kind of old and unlikely to to play that way but even that i had to watch them because they would occasionally like scuffle a little bit yeah and i would just be standing there with my heart in my my mouth just 
There's a great scene in the movie version of The Road, you know, the Cormac McCarthy thing, uh-huh. where the kid, the son sees these other kids and he just freaks out about how he needs to, he just has to be with them. Right. And that's kind of like, this is a very yeah. similar thing with dogs. They just need to be with other dogs every now and then. And um, and when you when you deny them that, it's just, it grates at your heart. Right. So... I, we're not going to dwell too long on dogs because I do that too much. Although not on this podcast. There's no such thing as too much. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, words. They. I know the words, but they do not make sense in that order. But so far, of all the guests, you are the probably the perfect person to float this by. Although your current dog's inability to play with other dogs complicates it a little bit. But so I have this theory. I go to. I've been going to dog parks a lot for the mm-hmm. last give or take. 19 years and um, I've spent my time in dog parks I yeah. have I have dog park experience okay so you know I, I've, I've come to the position that dog there is such a thing as dog economics <laughs> and it boils down to uh, who's the guy from Beautiful Mind John, John Nash. Nash right it boils down to the whole doctrine of positional goods which defines about 90% of dog economics right I have this stick and you don't. Absolutely. And that is why this stick is valuable, right? Yes. And all the dogs want to get... there In dog parks, there can be 10 billion sticks. The only one that has value is the one that some other dog has, right? Absolutely. So now, is that more positional good or Veblen-esque? They're, they're, <laughs> the two things are related. You know, I I think... You could see you could see it in a different way, right? Which is that there's there's search costs to finding the perfect stick. Right? Uh-huh, okay. You know, you uh-huh. have to go around and you have to hunt for sticks and you don't know you won't know if it's good until you've picked it up and tried it. If and, another dog and you won't know if other people other dogs will want it until you've picked well, it up and tried it. Well, but not even that. If other do- if another dog has already gone to the work uh-huh. of discovering a stick, it seems more efficient just to steal that dog's stick. Oh, I see what you're saying. Than to than to uh go and do all of that search for yourself, right? See, but now Okay, so now this raises an interesting question because this is in some ways vaguely Marxist. What you're basically <laughs> saying is all the value is of the stick yes. is caught up in the stick itself. And so this is basically the labor theory of labor value. Labor theory of value. It is all of the, the – like all of the value is created by the labor that went into finding the stick. Okay, so then the dog that takes the stick from the dog that found the stick, that is the rapacious capitalist. Absolutely. Okay. Is I take it you have a rapacious capitalist in uh, in your dog family? Well, I have two dogs, right? I have Pippa, who is a English Springer Spaniel, and I have Zoe, who is a Carolina dog, which, um, if you don't know this, uh, Carolina dogs are uh, a class of dogs that are recognized by the AKC now, they were recognized in the 1980s, that they're called... Um, it's not pariah dog. I can't remember right this second. But they're one of these breeds that missed all of that European breeding that actually Mastiffs were a huge part of, right? Mastiffs right. go back to like the 10th century, if not the Romans, depending on... They do go... I, I'm pretty sure they do go back to the Romans. And then there's a Tibetan... There's a group in Tibet and no one's really sure where they... Yeah. How they got there. But, but so the Carolina dog allegedly came over the, the bridge, the land bridge with the first Native Americans... And so missed all that stuff. And missed all that stuff and has lived fairly intact in the swamps of South Carolina and Georgia. Wow. And and I'm sure there's been there has been interbreeding. And part of the problem is if you've ever been and you probably travel more than I have, almost any place where there are stray dogs, they all look the same because there's a genetic regression to the mean right. that you get with almost all breeds. And Carolina dogs look that's there's a reason why they call them the American dingo. They just look like a dog. E dog, an er dog, right? And um, and so the problem is Zoe is is a little wild. 
she can pl- she can be around big dogs because she's um, she picks her battles badly and or she picks her battles well, but she can be pretty aggressive towards small dogs if they get up on her in her way. And um, and so it's funny. It's like, do you ever watch Walking Dead? I've never watched Walking Jeepers, Dead. Creepers, Creepers. Um, I watched many. Tele- I have watched many. Tele- I watched Game of Thrones. I watched Breaking Bad. I just you have just named the two that I don't happen to have seen. Okay. Well, anyway, so I won't go with my strained analogy, but. Uh, Pippa is the height of refined English civilization, and Zoe is a white trash swamp dog. Um, <laughs> all right. In the '40s movie, this would be a great situation comedy, and they would like come, you know, at the end they 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 unite and like overtake uh, overtake civilization together. Yeah, or in the '70s they'd fight crime. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, interestingly, bull mastiffs are, are uh, weirdly behave, uh, but they display security guard behavior mm-hmm. in parks like none of my dogs has ever gotten into a fight on their own account i don't know about fitzgerald yet he was a little too young when we had to take him out of the dog parks but both of the other dogs would do the same thing is if a dog fight starts they will break it up yeah yeah yeah. and the thing is the owner of the dog that was winning the fight does not like it when you're a <laughs> 130 pound dog and they're they're actually bred not to hurt anyone yeah um, and so what they will do uh, is they will go and they will grab the dog that's on top by the neck and pull them off without, you know, they don't. But it looks it awfully scary. Yeah. And owner. some women, a woman in, in Riverside Park in New York did this to my old dog Finnegan and pulled his head up. Well, he's got this little boxer in his jaws mm. and by the scruff of the neck and the boxer wasn't hurt until she grabbed it. And then now the boxer's dangling rather than on yeah. the ground and the teeth dug in and then she screamed at me and I was like, if you report and I, she was like, I'm going to report you to the SPCA and the owner of the other dog came up. She was like, I think you should take your dog home because if you report her dog, I'm going to get your dog put down. And that was the end of that conversation. But um, I remember – I love boxers, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, like dogs fight. No, dog, dogs it, fight. I agree. The, and it, um, it, but it, I as, – as I've said it more than a few times on this podcast, I don't like it when cute things hurt other cute things. Yeah, I know. The squealing is, is – it and, breaks your heart every time. But I remember when we used to have Cosmo the Wonder Dog, we lived in Addison, Morgan, and we used to take the – we used to go to the dog park on – was it Columbia Road up there? Mm-hmm. And um, there was this wonderful boxer named Rosie. And and she used to play with all the other dogs. And then Roxy's owner, uh, Rosie, Rosie's owner had a human baby. And then she's, the boxer stopped playing with the other dogs and just stood guard by the baby carriage you know, every day. Wouldn't let any dogs near it. You know, it was just so awesome. But... Anyhow, one of these days, you know, I, I, one of these things I spend way too much time thinking about is prepping for the apocalypse. And um, I always Don't think... Don't we all now? <laughs> um, and one of the things I always think about is, since humans are going to be unreliable in the apocalypse, what you're going to need is a sizable, not an army, but a platoon of reliable dogs. I think and, a platoon's about right. Yeah. And, and I always think it's, it's Mastiffs, Rottweilers... Uh, maybe a couple Domerans and a couple Germans, right? And you get them all as puppies. You raise them as a pack. You're the pack leader. Maybe you appoint a border collie as the sergeant. And um, I think you also want a terrier to go into small places and and if you're really desperate, catch you rodents to eat. That's true. Although uh, I will say my um my dingo, if if you took all of the squirrels and rabbits that she has killed in in Washington D.C., forget groundhogs and hedgehogs, other places, she could have a Really impressive necklace of skulls. Oh wow! Um, You're, yeah, mastiffs. <laughs> they they have ambitions in that direction, but sadly, 
They do not possess the means to uh, fulfill their ambitions, constantly thwarted. All right. So um, now that we got the important stuff out of the way, I want to I want to press you on. Um, you say you're a moderate libertarian, right? So you recently wrote a piece on um, uh, when drugs are legal, gangs will diversify, which I liked, and mm-hmm. I I agree with that point. Why don't you explain that argument before we get to the stuff that this I was under? Like, so I, you know, it was the sort of standard thing that libertarians say is. Look, if you look at the amount of crime that is committed by black markets, even if you think that the black market product is bad, and look, I think, you know, we look at the opioid crisis, we look at this and it's bad, right? Uh, You should not take opioids. They're bad for you. You can still think that it's a net social good to legalize the product because the crime is so so destructive that these markets generate. And so I, I sort of said this once at a, uh, with a group of economists, and, and one of the economists who grew up in a, an emerging market said, no, that's not right. Like, it doesn't get rid of the crime. They'll just go into something legal. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's what the mafia did, right? They, they, they had this – now, the mafia predated prohibition. They seem to have grown up out of sort of Sicilian various uh, – the, the attempts to bring some order to the polity there ended up being the mafia. But they, came, they come to America and they're sort of small-time gangs and then prohibition happens and they turn into big-time gangs. And they get this huge infrastructure for moving this, this banned product. And then prohibition ends. So they don't go back to their old activity, which was basically kind of terrorizing Italian immigrants in Little Italy. Instead, they take all the money they've made, which is fabulous amounts of money, and they go into racketeering and extortion on a big scale. They get involved with labor unions. They, you know, the Teamsters, you know, notoriously, but a lot of things. They go into Las Vegas. They do all of these things, and then they taint those businesses, right? And I think that that's probably right. I mean, you've got this trade that is extremely lucrative. It's not lucrative for the street dealers, but there are people who've made fantastic amounts of money. So if you legalize heroin or marijuana or the rest of it, what happens to all those gangs? Are they just going to be like, oh, well, I guess we're done. We'll right. go to med school now, right? No, they, they start looking for other avenues. Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I should have had you I had Jack, who can't speak right now, and it's not because of the ball gag in his mouth. Um, <laughs> there was an interesting paper that came out recently tracing the the origin of the mafia to the rise, uh, the, the realization that citrus fruit, fruits cure scurvy. And there was an enormous demand for oranges and lemons and whatnot, and they could control the supply and demand, and that's where they come out of it. It's just like, whether or not that tells the whole story. I don't know. I've read it's a lot about the mafia, but it's interesting. And one of the reasons I thought it was interesting is I mentioned earlier, my brother drove for the Fulton Fish Market, a place, as someone who grew up in New York, you know, was not unknown to the mafia. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, it, was, it was not unknown in, in, in the same way that, like, Beyonce is not unknown to the American public. That's right. And, uh, um, but my brother always made the point, having driven a fish truck, fish delivery truck, that the mafia would always go to any business where time was of the essence, where you, where they could win just simply by delaying the product that you needed, right? That's interesting. And um, it's a Bridget, so shelf life of fish, very short demand. Right. You know, you got to get it to the restaurant quick. F- produce in general, right. mafia got into. 
one of the things that always drove my dad crazy who was in the journalism business is that none of the New York newspapers would ever write about the fact that the mafia controlled the newspaper delivery trucks um, in New York City. And it's because, again, you have the guy over a barrel. you got to get the newspapers right. out right away, right, or it goes stale. And so I thought it was just sort of interesting about the the oranges thing is like, you know, they, they have a short shelf life. This and, and so that model fits. And I thought it was a very good point about how the crime won't go away automatically because once you have an institution that's developed, that has its own, the people are invested in its perpetuation, they don't simply say, oh, well, this line of business is gone. Let's just go out of business. They look right. for something else to do, right? People stop using DVDs. Netflix doesn't say, well, we're out of delivering movies to people. They just deliver it a different way, right? right? But so- my question, though, is testing your libertarian position on this. Give me your main argument. In the piece, you seem to suggest that the main argument for legalizing drugs was the crime associated with it. I think that that's a lot of the argument. There's a lot of arguments, right? There's an know, argument, what are yours? That's my guess. There's, there's an argument for, from personal autonomy, which is just that, like, do we, you know, maybe people have a right to destroy themselves. I think there's interestingly now... The argument. So initially, and I don't think that I actually don't think that this is just me struggling to maintain my pro legalization cred. Initially, when the opioid crisis broke, I had thought, you know, maybe this is, maybe I'm wrong, right? Because the thing about the opioid crisis is that unlike the crack epidemic, it hasn't produced the kind of violence that the crack epidemic did, where these massive turf wars that are just incredibly, you know, people getting shot little girls dying because a bullet ricochets through a window. Uh, It hasn't produced that kind of violence. It's just produced total social breakdown in in white America. Uh, And I thought, given that the crime is bad but not really that high, maybe maybe it's time – maybe I should rethink, right? But then I started to get a handle on what's actually happening thanks to people like Sally Sattel of AEI. And so my understanding now is that what's going on is the problem isn't – necessarily addiction per se. Mm-hmm. Actual problem is a drug called fentanyl, which mm-hmm. is like 50 times more powerful than um, heroin, which dogs can't sniff. You can basically just FedEx the stuff from China, right. which is what's happening. And the problem with that is that it's very hard. When something's that powerful, it's hard to mix right. And so it's less of an addiction epidemic, although that is part of it. That is definitely part of it. But the big scary mortality is increasing part of it is fentanyl replacing heroin and because it's badly mixed leading to a huge spike in overdoses and to me that actually kind of speaks for legalization right because what the problem is right if you were buying fent like i'm not saying no one should take fentanyl it's not good for you right like i i'm not sort of pro-drug but if people are buying something that's killing them because the people who in the supply chain can't mix the stuff right Right. Even though I think being addicted to fentanyl is terrible. Right. It is better than being dead. Right. If you're addicted to fentanyl, you might get, become unaddicted to fentanyl at some point. And that that may, again, be an argument for legalization. And you saw this in Prohibition where there was a lot of tainted stuff going around mm-hmm. and huge deaths. Now, but, you know, I, I also have to be honest, there's an offsetting argument. You know, Mark Kleiman, who's a great drug policy researcher, very far to the left of me. But he says, look, overall deaths from alcohol went down in the pro- in Prohibition. Mm-hmm. Now, and overall kind of 
deaths, even even when you factor in homicide, even when you factor in the people who died from drinking wood alcohol or something similar, because so many fewer people got cirrhosis, so many fewer men got drunk and beat up their wives and accidentally broke their neck, all of those things. I mean, you know, there really was some improvement in some social indicators as a result of prohibition. And you have to be honest about that when you say, so like, what's the net social costs? I don't know, but there's a real liberty cost to, to, to putting someone in jail for, for taking drugs or dealing drugs. There's a real crime cost to making a black market product. And there's a real death cost to people who get stuff that is not mixed. If they were buying the stuff from, you know, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, they would be getting the same dose every time and they wouldn't be dying. And so I think th- those are all – I think it's a real complicated issue and I don't – I was much more strident about it 10 years ago, and now yeah. I think it's it's awful complicated, and I can see how people come out on either side of the issue. Yeah, so um, I'm an outlier at National Review. National Review has been for ending the drug war since, I think, 94, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always been in favor of dec- – I don't, I don't like the way we've been – I don't like the pace of how we've been legalizing marijuana. I would have much rather do it in Colorado, wait 10 years, that kind of thing, you know. But I've always been in favor of decriminalizing pot and eventually leaving it up to the states to legalize it. But on... I would also add sort of hallucinogens as like a no-brainer. Again, maybe you shouldn't take a lot of them, but like no one no one drops acid and then goes and like kills their mother because, you know... They're, Unless they they're... think she's a giant spider, but it's rare. <laughs> it's rare. It's very hard to catch a giant spider. <laughs> like if it were me and I saw a giant spider, I would run. Yeah, I fair enough, not, fair know. enough. No, I, I, that's fine, or at least I, I'm willing to entertain that. But for the addictive narcotics, I've always been in favor, in principle, of the drug war. Could it be done better? Could it be done differently? All that kind of stuff. And the question I always ask my colleagues at National Review, who I think all of them, I mean, Ramesh, Rich Lowry, Kevin, I mean, Kevin Williamson and, and Charlie Cook both want to legalize heroin and coke and all that kind of stuff. Pretty sure Rich does. Pretty sure Ramesh does. And the question I always ask him is, if the drug war worked, would you be in favor of it, right? Because it's a prudential question. Right. And I remember the first time I asked Rich that, he was like, huh, that's a good question. And I don't think I've ever gotten a satisfactory answer about this. I should take it up with them. But, you know, so part of my problem with the legalize it all argument and the argument that you make, right? So David Bowes made this argument in his libertarianism book 10 years ago. Is that, Wouldn't it be better if big corporations – could guarantee quality of the product, right, and 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 guarantee safety and blah 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 blah, and sell it at affordable prices, right? So, first of all, the st- stipulation there is is that it would be great if you could have a marketing campaign from a big corporation pushing, you know, like right. forget all the Viagra commercials, right? Now we're going to get you know uh, heroin commercials, right? Um, I mean, you could do to them what you did to tobacco and refuse to allow them to advertise, but okay, but you know. Uh, We'd have to go through the process, sure. right, a little bit. And and so I, I, I one of the reasons I would just stipulate, and, I, and it's weird. Maybe that's why I keep bringing up my brother. You know, my brother was a drug addict, and my brother died. And, and I have a very close friend whose kid recently, in the last couple of years, died from a fentanyl overdose. And, but, and I agree with you. The, the death argument actually works both ways, right, or cuts both ways, I should yep. say. But my problem with the, the, the core libertarian position is that while we are not homo economicus, the, the, the post-enlightenment assumption of all politics is that 
we are, we, are, we are sovereign individuals, but that we are also rational inter- individuals and that we use reason to, to, to guide us. And as anybody who has known someone who's addicted to heroin or opioids, whatever, reason le- gets on a bus pretty quickly. Right. So it, uh, I had a friend who died when I was quite young of a, of a cocaine overdose. And what you and you see you go through the cycle with them, right? It's like they're going to stop and they stop for three months. And then, you know, it's like it, and, you know, like as a former smoker, uh-huh. I, I assume that it's some similar thing. It's like just calling to you. Right. And you can go for two years and then like something happens and it's just calling. to yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And the problem with drugs, right, is that they hijack the reward system of the brain. Right. Your your brain is optimized to say do these things because they're sur- pro survival, and do don't do those things because they're anti survival. And all of the chemicals in your brain are set up that way. And these things hijack that system and make it really rewarding to do something that's really really bad for you. Um, I don't think that's true of all drugs, but it, I think it is definitely true of classes of drugs like opioids and like. Um, the cocaine derivatives uh, and methamphetamine and and that's a real thing and I think it, it it is something that libertarians are not good at speaking to, which is that you know the drug is substituting for your reason and it doesn't do this for everyone. I find opi- I'm always interested like uh, if I go when I went to get my wisdom teeth out for example is like people are like oh you're going to get the good drugs and yeah. I was like I actually hate opioids I find them deeply unpleasant unpleasant and would never take them but other people love them and it's quite it's it, clearly there's on the other hand like cigarettes my first cigarette i was like this is fantastic I'm yeah like, right so it's not like actually true that anyone who takes heroin will get addicted you need no, no i think that's a, true but some irreducible but number some will well and if you legalize it yes more people will get addicted i think that is true i think and i think libertarians who deny that at the same time i think libertarians do have a point that Right. The black market creates a lot of the overdoses because it's badly mixed and that if you're just on like methadone, right, if you're on a kind of maintenance, Mm -hmm. that most overdoses are accidental. They're not like, you know, even drinking, right? Most people, even heavy drinkers, they'll kill themselves slowly, but they don't kill themselves. That They don't die of alcohol poisoning unless they're dumb frat boys and they're too young to know how to control their drinking. And so that while legalization would create more addicts, I think that is correct – it would also make addiction less destructive. And I think that that's a real – but, you know, I also like just from my deep – and I should say like I don't even really drink that much anymore. But drugs as other than than cigarettes and, and coffee have never really appealed to me. But, you know, I I personally just have a deep kind of like it's your brain. It's you. Don't mess with it, right? So – um, and that's my, my sort of Puritan coming out. I, and that's why I say I think it's real complicated, right? It is – I understand there are irrational people on all sides of the debate who just say dumb things. But I think there are rational people. You can make a kind of utilitarian argument for both sides in part because you're playing off these values, right? Is it is it worse to have more people having a more, uh, a more benign form of addiction? I have like – I. How do you even answer that question? Right. right? A, I, I agree. That's that's my point. I, I, I err on the side of lowering the number of addicts, lowering the number of people who no longer can rationally conduct their lives. There are enormous externalities to friends, family, communities. Absolutely. People are addicted to these things. And what I play off of is I 
I really cannot stand the drug legalization as panacea approach. I, I, I can't stand any policy idea as panacea. None of them are. And this is this is something where libertarians do not not all of them by any means. Right. Lots of libertarians are good on this. But there is often a tendency to kind of gloss over like we're going to have more addicts. Right. You know, that is a thing that's going to happen. Don't say it's not. You know, we when you lower the price of something, you get more, you get people want more of it. Right? right. That's the so I think that there's that element. And I think the good thing about marijuana legalization, though, is that I think that we're going to see, right, we can actually, it's not going to map perfectly, but we can see how many extra addicts do we get. Because yeah. there are there is a, such a thing as marijuana addiction. It's not really a physical addiction. Like, opioids yeah. are really bad. No, but it's a psychological thing for some people. It's psychological. There are people who are definitely psychologically dependent. And we can see how much more of that do we get, how much more of it, you know, and I think that will give us a template for... What do you what do you do going forward? How do you? I mean, I think there there are externalities, but I also I am I have a general reluctance to tell to make laws and put yeah, people no, in that. jail to tell people. But the externalities are huge, and I think that absolutely we should deal with that, and not just crime. Right? It's it's hugely destructive to families and friends. I mean, it really like the the group of friends who I, I knew that guy with it just sort of broke us up, and I, yeah. I haven't spoken to any of those people in years. There was something about it that we we didn't want to talk to each other after the, the it happened. The stress of all this nearly killed my dad for ten years, and yeah. and so it's the glibness on either side of it yeah. that just drives me crazy. Like, oh, you know, if we just fund. ICE and the DEA properly will solve it. No. And, you know, or we just legalize it all. No, it's complicated. It's messy. You know, the essence of, of, of libertarianism and conservatism properly understood recognizes that everything comes with trade-offs and every good thing comes with a bad side and every bad thing comes with a good side. And people who don't recognize that I have so little patience for anymore. Um, because you can't argue. Getting old and cranky, Jonah. That's absolutely true. (laughs) On on the weed thing, though, I mean, it's interesting. I I am now at the age where I have lots of friends uh, who have young teenage kids. And the most compelling argument I heard recently, which I gather comes from South Park, for not letting teenage kids, strongly discouraging teenage kids to smoke pot, it's an interesting one. It's that Pot eradicates boredom. And boredom when you're a teenager is hugely important for coming up with... And so it's also an argument against a lot of having these doodads, right? I mean, phones and tablets and video games to a certain extent. But boredom when you're at the golden age of science fiction, 16, you know, if you're you're really high, maybe, maybe, you know, I've been really high, I will admit that. I don't know that I could read science fiction or Atlas Shrugged. You know, there are certain things that, you know, you're, you're perfectly happy watching a lava lamp. You can watch the wall. You can watch the wall. <laughs> you can, you know, you can watch Honey Boo Boo. I mean, you can just literally veg out. That's, right. you know, and, and the... I think maybe that's why I never found it appealing. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Not why... a good vegger. I was, and how my problem was, was it made me profoundly antisocial and get inside my own head too much. And, um, and that's a place no one needs to be. Um, anyway, uh... Uh, this is kind of a weird segue. I apologize, uh, Megan, but since you brought up acid, uh, that made me realize that we need to come back and mention tripping.com. You don't know what tripping.com And what is tripping.com, <laughs> she asked um, avidly. Uh, it is not a uh, uh, lysergic acid uh, legalized uh, website. It's not on the dark web. It is 
Like, you know the creepy guy who does the Trivago ads? Uh-huh. Okay. Who looks like he should be trying to sell someone's kid's ice cream out of a unmarked panel van? Yes, indeed. Well, Trivago does for um, hotels what tripping does for home rental away. Sort of like Home Away, Verbo, all those places. Uh-huh. It is a one-stop shop aggregator of different rental places. And one of the reasons why they, why I like them as an advertiser is, like, I'm very awkward about this advertising stuff. I don't, I like to keep the business side of these things separate. That's why I became a writer in the first place. And, and so there's some products that I'm always, I've had to turn down because I'm just not comfortable hawking mm-hmm. them. There are the male enhancement products that wanted to advertise. I was just like, <laughs> I'm not touching it. I'm not doing it, so to speak. Um, and, uh, but tripping, I actually like renting houses away. It's, it's great if you got kids. If it's great if you have a dog that will take a dog. Um, I, a lot of hotels won't. You want to go to the beach? You want to go to Paris? I did it for Paris. I spent a Thanksgiving in Paris with my family once. We rented a house and it was fantastic. And you like to cook. You're a big yes. cook. We didn't talk about that at all. But the Goldbergs are big cooks too. And so sometimes you don't want to go to a restaurant when yeah. you're away. You want to walk when you're walking in Paris and you go to those great food malls, oh, right? Yes. You want to be able to buy stuff and cook it. And um, or buy stuff and bring it back and eat it picnic style while you relax. Exactly. And if you're going to a beach with kids or extended family, uh, if you stay at a hotel, you got to buy all the stupid to- beach toys. But if you actually rent a place at the beach, most of these places come with that stuff. And if you got really disgusting kids throwing mashed potatoes all over the place, you don't have to be embarrassed by going to a restaurant. You can just <laughs> eat at home. So I'm a big fan of it. And what tripping does is it saves people money by it's one. One stop, one stop fits all, one stop shopping. Where because right. apparently, and you may not know this, is that these different websites sometimes they'll advertise the same house on different sites, right? But they'll charge more on some sites than other sites. Ah, because some people go with an expectation that this is a luxury house rental site, right? So they think they should pay more. But if you're the renter, you want to just cover the waterfront, so you also sort of hedge by putting it on the cheaper site sites at a lower price. This lets you search all of them at once, and it's sort of one-stop shopping. And so with Tripping.com, one search lets you filter, compare, and sort over 10 million available properties on trusted sites like VRBO, TripAdvisor, Booking.com, and more. Don't wonder if you're getting the best deal. You'll save an average of 18% per night by booking your vacation with Tripping.com. So don't forget, if you want to save time and money while booking the perfect vacation rental for your trip, head to Tripping.com slash Dingo today. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash dingo. Thanks very much to Tripping, and thank you, Megan, for putting up with all of that. And um, let's get back to wherever we were. We're we're going along here. I want to get to a couple other things. First of all, uh, I highly encourage listeners to look at uh, Megan's piece that she wrote upon reaching the... Normally, I would never... Divulge reveal a lady's age. A, a lady's age, but, but she, she did, divulged it first. She did raise, write a piece on the lessons she's learned upon turning forty-five, and I, I also must admit the twelve rules for life she comes up with, and we're not going to read all of them. That'll take a little while, but I want to admit that I lied on Twitter because I tweeted this out yesterday, and it got a, generated a big sort of thing, and. I'd said I agree with all of this. Oh no! Now, now, the where do you disagree? Is it and the so, dinner rolls? I've gotten a lot of pushback on the dinner rolls. No, no, no. I have no problem. Although I'm trying to avoid carbs, I'm, yes. I'm with you in principle on that one. I thought your first one is exactly right. And Jack has heard me lecture about this a lot to like interns and stuff about be kind. And 
I, I'm entirely in favor of making the Aristotelian case for being kind, right? That it's good in and of itself. Yes. But it's also in people's self-interest, which people don't seem to realize, particularly here in Washington. I always tell interns, if you're going to make an enemy out of somebody, choose carefully because <laughs> you're going to be in this town forever Ever. and you're going to see them all over the place, you yep. know? <laughs> and you never know, this, this person who may be a jerk now could get over it and also could get this... Inc- People rise so quickly here, and they could ruin your life in five years, you know? So just be nice to everybody as best you can. I will never forget the savage book review that I wrote, a guy named Barry Schwartz, one of his books for the New York Sun, back when that was still a, a daily paper. And, and a know, great paper. And, yeah. And at the time, I thought of it as, like, he's this guy who got to write a book, and I'm just some lame, like, you know, I work on the website of The Economist. I'm nobody. And I really enjoyed ripping his book to shreds. And years later, I got a fellowship at New America. And who do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, not Barry Schwartz, Barry Lynn. Uh, Barry oh, okay. Schwartz's Paradox of Choice. I'm I, now that I'm 45. I, you know, uh, tell me about it. So he is. Tell like, me about it, Sarah. We're, <laughs> <laughs> we're chatting. We're chatting, and he's like, I feel like I know your name from somewhere, and I knew where he knew me. I was yeah. like, and he's like, we should have lunch. And I was like, oh yeah, have it never would never be good for you. <laughs> And then he comes up to me after another lunch, and he's like, I remembered where – and I was like, I'm so sorry. I was young, yeah. and I didn't – and you know, now having written a book, I feel even worse because it's like you spent two years doing this. Tell me about it. And people are taking your labor, right? And I, I actually didn't get any particularly savage reviews, so this is not personal. It's more that like I think of what I did to someone and how hard he worked on that book, and I was enjoying myself so much. And like, look, you don't have to say the book is good, although right. I have personally a policy of I don't review books – that I don't think I'll like. Mm-hmm. Because that that review, it is the easiest thing to write. It is so much fun. And if you're good at it, and I like kind of am good at being mean to people, but, you know, it's just cheap. And yeah. it's like, it will come back to haunt you. And it also just kind of isn't good for your soul, I think. No, I agree. So cheerful and Pollyannish and mom, but I, I believe No, I, I agree. Look, I, far more than you, I think it's safe to say, I cut my teeth on some pretty smash mouth kind of writing and <laughs> and i love doing some of that stuff and every now and then and you are very good at it I must but, say. thank you but you know uh you know ramesh years ago told me that his goal is to tackle the left's best arguments not their worst arguments and as a principle as an ideal i think that's very laudable but sometimes it's just a hell of a lot of fun to tackle their worst arguments yes. you know but i look back on a lot of that stuff and i'm a little embarrassed by it i was young you know and i it was the path of least resistance for my writing style and all that kind of stuff. And I still indulge it every now and then, but I choose my targets yes. more carefully. I, I occasionally do as well. But I but and I try to choose targets who've already done it to someone else. Yeah. Like if they've started, I don't feel bad finishing it. No, that's but right. I, I try not to. There's a great quote from a rabbi whose name now escapes me because, I, because again, 45. But his, he says, when I was young, I admired people who were clever. Now that I'm old, I admire people who are kind. And I think yeah. that is so true. Yeah. Is that like you realize how many people are clever and how few people are kind and yeah. you realize which is the hard one. Yeah. Now, look, if someone wants to go hammer and tongs at Ann Coulter, I'm not going to bother. But <laughs> yes. But that's her, her whole raison d'etre is yeah. just being mean to people. And so she deserves whatever she invites. Anyway, I don't want to dwell yeah, on what, that. Yeah, what did you disagree? with okay the one i disagreed with was well i guess i don't have to find it i'm holding this thing in my hand but i mean i i i I like your thing about saving money fine that's good i i it's an ideal i can live for oh it's um number five 
Go to the party even when you don't want to. Nine times in ten, you'll be bored and go home early. But the tenth time, you will have a worthy experience or meet an interesting person. The more That more than redeems the other those other wasted hours. Now, here's the thing. In principle, I get your point and I kind of agree with it. And it, it sort of jibes with my view that almost anything when you're young that you do that will be a good story later is probably worth doing within reason, right? I mean, you know... Uh, stealing someone's liver in a motel room. You know, it's a good story, but, you know, (laughs) we all can stipulate that. But I hate so many parties. And I really like, I'm very much a hobbit in that I like my hobbit hole. I like my thing. No, I'm a hobbit too, which is why I made that rule. Yeah. And and so uh, there's this great word. Maybe Jack can look it up while we're doing this. It's a Finnish word, which means that feeling you have when you... No, you're not going to go out and you're just going to stay home in your underwear and get drunk in front of the TV. There's literally a word for it. And while I don't necessarily need to do it in my underwear, I got a lot of that in me. And and I think particularly in Washington, saying one out of ten parties are going to be worth going to. I mean, do you include like uh, like some of these like K Street or book parties, you know, these like press events? Yeah. Okay. Here's the word for listeners. It's Kalzar's Sikhanit. The feeling when you're going to get drunk home alone in your underwear with no intention of going out. I mean, my that, goodness. that word is like my spirit animal. The Finns are an enterprising <laughs> people. They have, uh, no, I, you know, like I am a hobbit. I'm oh. married to another hobbit. But actually, I think, yeah, you know what? You chat with someone who is interesting. And what, were, what was I going to be doing at home? Was I going to be watching a television show I've already seen or a yeah. movie I've already seen and playing some Civ 4, which I've now played? approximately like a, a work year's worth of in the last 10 years. You know, I also like I, so I had my midlife crisis and I decided to write an unpublishable science fiction novel. So I didn't actually go out for like three years. It was my social, my social life was that I would stay home and work on this, this George R. R. Martin sized tome. And it was good for me. I actually like, I'm glad I did that instead of going to the party. But mm-hmm. in, you know, if you're just going to sit home and waste time, go for an hour. It's like my mother always used to say about guys, you'd be like, I'm not going out with that guy. And she'd be like, just let him buy you a drink. <laughs> One drink and then you can leave. And it's like, and you know what? I dated a couple of the guys. She said, just let him buy you a drink. Now, a bunch of them were like drips. And then I was like, oh, will you look at the time? I've got to go wax my floors. But, um, <laughs> You know, the so option the, the the kind of economic concept is option value, right? Yeah. And this is the same thing as the rule behind trying an extra dish at a restaurant, which is that you don't know, and like even though it costs you money to buy an option or something, the actual the option to to have a new friend, to hear something really cool, etc., it's actually really valuable. And we we hobbits have to actually discipline ourselves. Yeah, no, that's fair. To get over it. Now, like, on the other hand, you know, I went to business school with people who they I, I don't understand extro- extroverts at all. But these were people who, like, they would go home and they would pick up the phone and start calling people. It was like the idea of being yeah. by themselves was totally intolerable. And I can't imagine living that way. So are you like Jonathan Rauch? And the only reason I'm outing him on this is that he wrote a whole piece for The Atlantic about this, like, a long time ago. Yeah. Where, like, are you more comfortable talking to an audience of 500 people than talking to one person? No, I am more extroverted than Jonathan. Well, okay, that's um, a low bar. But. Yeah, that's a low bar. <laughs> no, I actually, like, I, the thing is, I'm I'm like a, I'm on the, if you do the, these Myers-Briggs tests, uh-huh. I'm right on the, the middle. 
So sometimes I'll test as an introvert, sometimes I'll test as an extrovert, but it's really an, it's a narrow range. That's you know like I like parties, yeah, but I also extroverts like they go to parties and they're charged up like they get home and they want to like yeah. relive the experience i go to a party and then i need to come home and and like recharge yeah, yeah, yeah. i find it i'm more like that too i mean I, i'm not and, and, and why i agree with you in principle and maybe i'm just not going to the right parties but um the reason i agree with you in principle is you know i spent close to 10 years working from home when i wrote my first book and i was like howard hughes with kleenex boxes on my feet I spent all day basically with my dog and my wife and a newborn kid. And I do think kids change this yes. equation quite a bit for yes, parties. Yes, absolutely. But, and then Arthur Brooks in his, uh, in, clearly in a fever-induced you know, uh, delusion, invited me to come back to AEI where I cut my teeth in the early 90s. And it was so good for me to be around human beings again. Yes. Um, working from home can really mess you up if you do it without having some other outlet for socializing bouncing an idea off somebody of just the little things. People need humans, like the kid in the road, right? And like dogs at the park. They need to be part of a group a little bit. Yes, having having written this novel and handed it off to my agent and told her to find someone who's crazy enough to publish it, I'm now in the process of like saying, oh, I just spent three years not talking to anyone and I've gotten a little <laughs> squirrely. I should leave my house occasionally. So like I'm emailing people like, let's get brunch. Let's do it. Right? And I, you know, so yes, I think that this stuff is variable. The, the rule go to the party presupposes the ability to go to the party. If you have a newborn at home, right, don't right. just like leave them in the stove and right. trot off, right? Um, there's a warrant out. Right. Maybe, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But, you know, if you've been invited to a party and you don't have anything planned and you're just going to kind of stay home and read a novel that you could just as easily read, you know, spend an hour there. Yeah, okay, that's fair. And if I you're nervous, fair. walk in and say to the host, you know what, like I I've I've got work that I have to do tonight. My this works. It's easier for journalists, right? Sorry, I'm on deadline. I didn't want to miss your party, but I can only stay an hour, right? But just go and see who's there. Maybe it'll be terrible, but maybe there will be someone great. So you know, go go find out. So you said something in this a second ago that raises a point that has bothered me and fascinated me for a very long time, and I want to writers lying about their deadlines. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my world. Yes. You're let – me, let me just ask you one quick factual question. You're a moderate libertarian. How much time have you spent amongst the libertarian tribe? I mean, I mean fair, P- I mean, Peter works at Reason, right? Yeah, Your my husband. husband works for Reason magazine. Um, I've spent a lot of time with the libertarian tribe. Okay. Um, and So here's the question. Okay. So okay. like – so for people out there who don't you – know, and people who have listened to the Matt Continetti podcast know I can geek out on the – the different uh, tributaries of this, <laughs> of the right and all that f- for a long time, but so Megan is sort of like in the in the since we're talking about hobbits in the Tolkien universe, Megan is is not if conservatives are the men of the West the what are the Rohedron or whatever the riders of the riders of Rohan riders of Rohan if conservatives are those guys then Megan is part of this sort of the Elvish community. A separate and apart, but every now and then joins in the in in the necessary fights. Yes, and and I used to say about talk about writing that you w- would like to take back. I used to get into really nasty fights with libertarians in the early days of NRO, and the problem was is I was actually fighting with the Lou Rockwell von Miesian crowd, and I was throwing around libertarian too broadly as right. if. Everybody agreed with that crowd, which they don't. Indeed, there is a deep and growing split between the... As uh, there should be. 
I mean, I assume you're way more on the high side. I am what I am what the Lou Rockwell people would call a cosmotarian. Yeah, um, and you know they call themselves paleo libertarians. There was a wonderful thing. There was a, allegedly for a brief period in like 2009 uh, when all of this. Remember when Reason outed Ron Paul's newsletter? Uh-huh. Two friends of mine. A proud day. Who do that? A proud day. And uh, so there was the the people. The paleo libertarians got very upset about that, and there was briefly on the internet like a libertarian death list, which I was allegedly on. I never saw it, and I don't know if that was true. Someone told me I was on it, but it was wonderful because it, would, it talked about the the orange line libertarians, <laughs> right? And there's a map. There's a map showing like where Cato and Reason's office were. The orange line for listeners yeah. who don't know is this is a subway line is here. It, in so DC. is yeah. Wonderfully, none of us were actually. I was like technically kind of because I was at the Atlantic at the time. It was like a ten minute walk to yeah, the yeah. orange line from my office. But like Cato is not really on the orange line. Reason is definitely nowhere near the orange line. And it was wonderful, like, also the idea, because they thought there was this big conspiracy. Yeah. It was wonderful, the idea of, like, libertarians having this conspiracy. <laughs> okay, guys, well, we, we've we got the conspiracy to ruin Ron Paul now. What's the first thing we need? Metro access. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, we planned the whole thing so that we would be easily able to commute back and forth between our offices. The internet communication <laughs> is not reliable. We must use right. the metro. Like, I was going to work for another employer, but then, then actually the elders said, well, no, the Atlantic is the most convenient one to the orange line, therefore. Yeah. Also, the whole concept of libertarian conspiracy is vaguely yes. like jumbo shrimp but uh more than more than more than vaguely <laughs> um okay but so here's the question i have about uh, to borrow a phrase orange line libertarians among among whom many are my friends mm-hmm. right ronald bailey who works at reason and is yes. one of my oldest and best friends and i am a so you mentioned before talking about the myers-briggs test right uh-huh. for listeners who don't know it's this test you can figure out what kind of personality you have i know mine because i had to take it in college and i got a very strange result which we don't have to talk about right now oh but i, I wish to talk about it right <laughs> um, now i want to hear about the very strange result I, I should say i taught the myers-briggs test to to mba students in a leadership course in business school so i'm dying okay. to hear what uh, your result was all right so very quickly because i do want to come back to this my Myers-Briggs result, I took it for the, I was part of this leadership seminar thing in college. Don't get me started. And, and whatever, the, the, the lines mm-hmm. are almost perfectly symmetrical going in opposite directions. And only about 4% of the people who take the test have this. And I asked the guy, you know, why, what is this? And his explanation was, you tend to see this from people who grew up in a family where either the parents were divorced and they both wanted to be the primary parent. Or where they stayed together, but they never really fundamentally agreed on how to raise the kids. And they had very different points of view. Huh. And which basically describes my parents, right? My dad was this nerdy Jewish intellectual wise man, you know, um, sort of Irving Crystal man K. And my mom was this brilliant, wild-eyed party girl who took – who lived a life of adventure. And very apples and oranges, right? And – Apples and lug wrenches, you know, I mean, just different. And and they could never quite, they agreed to raise me Jewish, but that was about it. And because my mom was Christian, but she never converted or any of that kind of stuff. And so I remember, I talk about this in my eulogy to my dad. When I took this in college, the guy, so the guy tells me the advantage of this is that your personality stays constant no matter how much stress you have. 
And this is what he told me. And I, I think a lot of this stuff is BS or there's a high BS quotient to a lot right. of this stuff. So I'm open to correction on this. But the way he explained it was the good thing about this personality type is that it stays constant under stressful situations you know, and all the rest, blah, blah, blah. And so I call my dad. And my dad had this great gift for dry humor. And, and I'm, you know, I'm a 20-year-old idiot which is, you know, redundant. And, and I'm talking about how, Dad, this is great. You know, apparently this means, like, I'm reliable. I'm a rock. I don't change. I don't, my personality doesn't change when I'm under great stress or pressure. You know, I don't all of a sudden become mean or blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm just going on and on about it. My dad is listening, and you just hear him nodding over the phone indulgently. And he almost never cursed. But then he finally, like, waited for me to be done, and there's this long silence. And he says, yeah, that's great, unless you're an asshole. <laughs> and which always was a good piece of advice this is like yes. you know it doesn't you know constancy as an asshole still makes you uh an asshole. so anyway but the thing is getting back to the myers-briggs thing and orange line libertarians yeah there is no group i have met that is more likely to have what to have studied their own personality type more than libertarians i've been in at, my defense I know you is part of my my course curriculum. You have a grad school. You have a grad school excuse, but again, that's why I asked how much you travel among this tribe. I've been to parties with large representatives of Cato types, reason types, and people will just, oh, I'm an NLTJ. I'm a this. I'm a that. And according to Jonathan Haidt, actually, libertarians do test different than yes. other people, right? And there's a on a different test, but yes, yeah. Uh, we, and the NLTJ thing is not Myers Briggs, right? It's uh, other. No, so no, it's yeah, no, it is it is Myers Briggs, uh, but the you've got the letters wrong. So it starts out it's E or I, which is uh-huh. extrovert or introvert, uh, and then there is N or S, which is uh, like intuit intuiting or sensing, uh-huh. uh, and then there is T or F, which is thinking or feeling, and then there's uh, J or P, and one is like orderly, and the other one is kind of like go with the flow. Uh-huh. I am an ENFP, uh-huh. uh, which is a quite rare personality type and frequently or an INFP depending on uh, what day I take the test and it's always like you know you guys are just hopeless <laughs> you're just sitting in the world in, in your room being wounded by the world you're terrible managers you're not good at anything else either just give up so it's very cheering but so what but so why 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 do libertarians do this so much why do they um, care about this so much I think it's a, you know like libertarians love systems right we're all about order and system that is like the fundamental thing that people don't get when they think it's all about like paying low taxes and 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 uh smoking as much weed as you want that's not actually true like what libertarians are are great systematizers they're great like they like to they like rational rules about things and categories and so forth and like they're far from the only people who are like this but they are very like that and so all of it is part of, is of a piece, right? Is like they're very interested in, in ways of analyzing the world and themselves and every person in it. And most people have more of a sense that there's something kind of like ineffable and human and they don't want to touch it. And libertarians are like, nope, putting it all in a box, right? Like yeah. that's And it is both the strength and the weakness of the movement is yeah. that they're super interested in analytics and less interested in, you know, just kind of touchy-feely, you know, emoting about values right and there's a lot of that in randianism which is uh indeed yeah my only quibble with that is i agree with you of the group we're now going to call orange line libertarians the guys who actually are deeply into this Mm -hmm. stuff 
But as a political movement, it is a lot more about cutting taxes and smoking weed. If you go out and look at I, I tend to judge political movements not so much by what they say they believe, but by what they prioritize. And, you know, libertarianism without low taxes and low regulation and particularly without marijuana legalization as a political movement, you know, it's not all, you know, arguments about stranded costs and all this kind of <laughs> stuff, right? I mean, the people who show up at these Rand Paul type things as a political movement um, have different priorities than the orange line. Look, in a, in, a, in a system, political system like ours, which is first past the post, which means that with with single member districts, which as I think you, you and I would both agree, right, what that tends to produce is two parties. And so I am sort of like the, the kind of utopianism of having a third party. I'm always like, we're never going to have a third party. It's just like structurally, it doesn't work in, in this system. But because of that, Right. If you go to any of these, if you go to, if you know like environmentalists, people who are really into the environment, most of them are very normal people. They, you know, they spend more time on their recycling than I do, but they're nice people. I like. And then you go to the Green Party, and it's like, wow. Yeah. Right. Because to be in a third party and be active in it, you end end up really selecting for nonconformists. You really select for people who are kind of outliers in terms of what they – and look, it is also true that the libertarians that I socialize with are people who are often professional libertarians, right? right? They spend their lives thinking about this. It's not how anyone does anything, right? In the same way that like the people at AEI are not like normal conservatives, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's just the, the nature of the beast. Most people have better things to do with their days than really think about what Hayek or Burke meant when they yeah. – you know, I, mean, I, um, I used to torture poor Ron Bailey when I worked with him as a television producer. And Ron's a, a brilliant guy who takes libertarianism very seriously. And he was, always used to defend libertarianism as this grand high calling and the best way to organize life and yada, yada, yada. And I agree with vast swaths of it. But we love pointing out that the guy running in California on the libertarian ticket was a druid dressed like Gandalf. <laughs> and then there was a guy in Wyoming who... Uh, in a, in approaching uh, Y2K, had taken some silver yes. chloride thing <laughs> yes. Yes. As a, because he didn't think there wouldn't be any infrastructure left after Y2K, and it turned him blue. Yeah, so this is actually <laughs> – my grandmother actually took gold treatments uh -huh. for rheumatism. There are apparently actual medicinal uses for these things. Yeah, um, but as a political – She didn't take enough to turn herself yellow. Yeah, but. okay. As a political movement, having your spokesman – the guy you running blue. for cover. Yes. Blue, you know, um, on the Smurf ticket is Yes, I, I think my favorite was the guy who had kept getting arrested for driving without a driver's license because he refused to have one because it was a concession to the state. And like on, on principle, I admire yeah, that. I'm with him. But on the other hand, you look at that and you're like, is this a person who's going to be able to build a coal political coalition to do anything? Probably not. Right? Or, or, like, or, or run the government. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that that is... But the Libertarian Party is, you know, like they've actually nominated normal candidates yeah, in the last yeah, yeah. two presidential elections. And so I've been, I've been saying for 20 years that no room of policymakers ever shouldn't have every, – every, let me put it more positive way. Every room full of policymakers trying to make a decision about public policy shouldn't be allowed to start the conversation without a libertarian being in the room or some person simply asking, should we be doing anything at all, right? <laughs> yes. Because everyone else, normal rooms full of policymakers, start from the assumption that we must do something. My great, my great uh, sort of motto 
for thinking about policy is like, first, don't take nothing off the table until you've seriously considered it. What should we do? <laughs> Maybe nothing. Let's right. really give nothing a think. And then if it looks like nothing is really not going to work, then maybe we'll think right. about other alternatives. Or as I like to say, don't just stand. Uh, what, what it has? Don't just do something. Stand there. Yeah, don't just do something. Stand there. Or don't do. Don't 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 just do something. Sit there. All right, we've gone way long. I can feel it. Poor Jack is losing oxygen from the ball gag in his mouth. Um, so we're going to go. I, I listeners have been complaining that I do too much preamble on my out question. I've already briefed Megan on that out question. So, what is the one thing in Washington that has either surprised you personally or would surprise listeners about Washington that was different from your expectations. And as a fellow former Upper West Sider, your your sagacity is beyond reproach. <laughs> well, you know, I, I rotated down here from the Upper West Side, uh, and I was only supposed to be here for three months. And I think what really surprised me was how pleasant it was. You know, I mean, here I am, a libertarian. I live in New York City. And I have to admit, when, when I told people that I was moving here permanently, my friends were like, do they have, like, restaurants there? <laughs> I was like, no, yeah, actually, there, there are vendors selling food. At the time, I have to say, 10 years ago, not very many good restaurants. Yeah. But, you know, so I was quite suspicious. And then I came here, and I was, like, full of really neat, interesting people uh, who were a pleasure to talk to. It was incredibly ple- – I mean, housing for me – uh, coming from Manhattan yeah. was like a dream, yeah. right? I remember getting my first apartment here. It was 700 square feet. I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, <laughs> who has 700 square feet all to themselves? I had never seen such luxury. And it, it was above ground too. I mean, it was an amazing apartment. And, but also it's just, it's the people are nice. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that really surprised me was discovering how much I like the fact that it's got a relatively flat income distribution. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, the upper middle class is very large here. Yeah. But most people, if you look at the way neighborhoods gentrify, right, they seem to kind of go up to about $750,000 for a house, which is about what two GS-14s can afford, Mm -hmm. right? And then they stop. Yeah. And then the gentrification moves. And it's because, you know, so much – and Matt Iglesias thought this was very funny, Mm -hmm. that I I liked this. But in fact, I think I'm like a libertarian with the aesthetics of a socialist. I like the flat income distribution. It's nice that there aren't a ton of people here who make – huge amounts of money kind of skewing everyone's sense of what real and normal is. Yeah. We do still very well. Don't as you know, people educated people in Washington do very well, but there are many fewer extremes than where we're from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like that about it. And just but just generally everyone if you are a journalist or a think tanker or something, everyone you meet here moved to Washington because they cared about some idea. Yeah. And there's no other city in the country that's like that. But, like, that's really what they, they came here for is there is some idea that drives them. And that, to me, is, makes it an incredibly pleasant place to live, which was emphatically, emphatically not what I expected when I came down here for three months ten years ago. Okay. Well, Megan, thank you for coming on. I hope you'll come back. We have more yes. arguments to have. <laughs> and everybody, thanks for listening. We're not done, actually. We're going to go on to the various and sundry portion in, in a minute. But I want to thank Megan for coming. Thank you for having me. All right, so now we are in what we call in G-file language the various and sundry stage of this podcast. Jack, what do we have on the agenda? 
Well, uh, one of your listeners last week took great offense at your uh, disparagement of goat cheese. This listener happens to be a goat cheese farmer, cultivator, uh-huh. uh, Westfield Farm, and you were offered free goat cheese samples from this person uh, to try to get you to change your mind about goat cheese. Okay, well, I, I, I appreciate the offer, and I'm glad to give you guys a shout-out here, and I apologize to people out there who... Uh, this was all in the Goldberg file. I had referred to goat cheese as, I believe, uh, Satan's toe fungus, and the restaurants use it way, way too much, and I apologize to people. I'm not trying to... You know, it's, it's an apocryphal story that John F. Kennedy ruined the hat industry by not wearing a hat to his inaugural. But I don't want to ruin the goat cheese industry by, you know, uh, disparaging. Yeah, the, um, the immense market power of this podcast. Yeah. Um, be careful wielding it. What a benevolent leader. But, you know, everybody who throws the goat cheese back in the face of the server at the restaurant can shout, Dingo! Because yeah. that's, you know, that's my catchphrase on all these uh, uh, websites. Anyway, I apologize, listener. If you want to send it to Jack and he can ta- he can be my food taster, um, that's fine. But uh, I have I have cultivated this dislike. It's not, I, I will say there are some really really mild goat cheeses I can have without uh, dry heaving at the table, but I just don't like it. I just don't like it. I don't like blue cheese either. I don't like stinky cheese. It's weird. My mom loves stinky cheese. I literally every now and then for like a Christmas thing will go to the Zabar's cheese counter in New York. And just say, give me the cheese that tastes most like death. Because I know that's what my mom will like to eat. But I just, I don't like stinky cheeses. So I'm sorry. What else? Uh, what else? The uh, So as of today, it's tomorrow. But as of listening, it will be today. Is Will be or will have been Groundhog Day. That was <laughs> like a limpid pool of clarity the way you explain that i was Thank trying to much. be i was trying to be accurate with tenses but <laughs> this podcast exists out of time so it's difficult to do yes tomorrow tomorrow now i'm getting it too yeah Th- this will be released on groundhog day and then re-released on groundhog day and then re-released on groundhog day <laughs> um it is the eternal return of the same listeners you know if i if my website were up and running i could point them there but some listeners may want to know that i have written a um a love letter to Groundhog Day, which National Review Online reposts every Groundhog Day, and I think it is one of the you know one of the I, one of the reasons I, I wrote about it is one I love the money movie, but two <laughs> were you about to say you love too. the money? I do love money. Don't get me wrong. Um, I just wish I had more of it to love. Um, years ago, when Charles Murray wrote a book called Human Accomplishment, where he tried to mathematically and statistically prove what the greatest human accomplishments in all of human history were. It's subtle, humble, you know, uh, <laughs> enterprise. He was asked if there are any examples today of great human accomplishment. And I remember reading about this, I think, in The New Yorker. And he pointed out computer programs and some other stuff. But then he said the movie Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, I'm not alone, yeah. you know. And... And then I started looking into it, and it turns out that, like, the Groundhog Day's influence and impact is really profound, and the issues it deals with are really profound, and I love it. And maybe on another time we can we can talk about that if we had really thought about this more. But hail Groundhog Day. Hey, Mike, why is your thumb all bandaged up? Well, Monday night I was slicing some kale, uh-huh. uh, trying to eat a— Damn, what? Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> and so, you slipped on some quinoa. <laughs> I know. It, I'm, I'm so embarrassed because I'm not even embarrassed that I sliced the tip of my thumb off. I'm, uh-huh. I'm more embarrassed that it was in eating kale or preparing kale. So we order some Whole30 whole thirty meals, which is like basically if it wasn't around for our 
great, 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 great grandparents. You don't uh-huh. eat it. Um, and my wife and I have it's, so it's quasi a paleo. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, it's actually more intense than paleo. Apparently, uh, apparently. Um, so we were trying to do a meal. Of course, I was going to drink alcohol with it, so uh-huh. that you know, kind of completely destroyed. Wait, the wait. Purpose. So what? What does the thirty refer to again? Uh, so it, you you just you're supposed to do it for thirty days. Oh, okay. So it's basically That's like thirty no generations. Or, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. More intense than paleo. Does that mean like the the box just contains uh, like a a buffalo that is released and then you have to hunt it. So it gives you a buffalo and a spear. <laughs> no, I, it's a it's a more restrictive diet than paleo. And so um, so it, it definitely is a fad diet. So what is left off that is on paleo? That is a so it uh, you can't have natural sweeteners like honey or maple syrup, which apparently you can on paleo. Okay. But yeah, so you eliminate sugar, alcohol, I wasn't going to get rid of the alcohol, grains, legumes, soy and dairy. Okay. And so anyway, yeah, preparing a meal, the the knife went right through my thumb, slicing kale, uh-huh. and yeah, the rest of the night was spent in the ER. So, not to make light of your injury, but I'm going to do it. Um, so, can you not use the thumb ID thing ever again on your <laughs> phone? Well, that's uh, that's uh, I, I'm preparing for a life in the clandestine services because I have no I have no no traceable <laughs> biometrics anymore. Okay, what else do we got for your injury? No, no, it's okay. I'm, yeah. Well, so we have we're trying to cultivate our Twitter following. We have one really enthusiastic follower mm-hmm. uh, at Jonah Remnant fan. Yes, and I actually know the identity of at Jonah Remnant fan. I I met with Jonah Remnant fan last night in the real world. Really? Yes. Uh, I'll say nothing more other than that we appreciate Jonah Remnant fan's efforts on our behalf in the Twitter trenches. Yes. And I told Jonah Remnant fan that I would give a shout out on the podcast, and so here it is. We appreciate your help, Jonah Remnant fan, and. Um, Art um, imitating life, but we need it. We, now we need is like more Twitter handles like mildly entertained Jack Butlerite, and you know, <laughs> um, and uh, but thank you very much, everybody out there, for the Twitter follows, for the feedback, for all the rest. Um, it really matters a lot. At Jonah Remnant, um, at Jonah Remnant is our Twitter handle. The Remnant Pod at Gmail is our. I'm so proud of you. Our, our email. I, I get it eventually. I mean, and sorry, so do you have anything else on the uh, thing? I'm yeah, call it? Pratt has one more thing. Okay. So you wanted the podcast to get weirder. Uh-huh. I, I, th- I think you should read the listeners this. Okay. Uh, Michael's just handed me a copy of a small book of poems called I Could Chew on This and Other Poems by Dogs. I like it already. <laughs> and I guess I'm supposed to read this one. I lose my mind when you leave the house. The plants are torn, the garbage strewn, the wires chewed, the couch, and I had a fight. Your bed is soaked, your liquor spilled, your TV smashed, your laptop no longer has any vowels. There's a smartphone in the toaster. There's a toaster in the toilet. There's a toilet in the hallway. There's underwear in my mouth. I went places I should never go. I saw a side of myself I should never see. I said things to the cat I can never take back. (laughs) So please, don't ever leave again. I like it. Maybe we'll read one every week. Yeah. Okay, last. And I know I need to tell more Zoe and Pippa stories. I am so delighted to uh, uh, announce that my wife is back from spending a week with her family. And so, because I was alone with the dogs for seven days. And it really kind of, I mean, it it got out of hand. Um, It was very primitive. It was extremely primitive. Um, They only let me eat out of my bowl when they were done. (laughs) And... Part of the problem is Pippa, we have one of those, the door to the backyard has, it's a lever doorknob, not a hand, you know, it's like a latch thing. 
and Pippin knows how to open the door. And so unless you have that locked, which we usually don't during the day if you're around, Pippa is like the velociraptor, mm. right? She just goes up and opens the door up and heads out there. And if you're in another part of the house and it's 15 degrees out and all of a sudden it feels like a poltergeist has just entered the room because <laughs> the house just like drops in temperature. And um, if you go on my Twitter feed, um, I'm, I'm at Jonah NRO, if, for those of you who don't know. I, I've been posting these pictures of the welcoming committee when I come home after I've left them alone. And you can see how Pippa instantaneously says, hey, great to see you. Hold on. And runs and gets a tennis ball and then heads to the other door because she wants to take me outside because she's not – she apparently doesn't realize – doesn't think that I actually know how to get to my own backyard and that there's actually an opportunity to play tennis ball. But anyway, one last thing. We had a listener who wrote in – see, we do read the email here. And she said she'd hope she's not too late for the new tagline for – um this show or the closing line or the, what, what's the word for it? I guess tagline works. Your sign off. Yeah, sign, sign off. That's yeah. the thing I was looking for. I feel like Homer in The Simpsons when he <laughs> says, give me thing scoop food with. And Marge <laughs> says, you mean a spoon, homie? <laughs> um, anyway, she wrote in and said that uh, her first responder's son has a, as a as a motto that fits pretty well. And I like it a lot. I don't know if we'll use it every week as the sign off, but it's all bleeding stops eventually, and um, I think it's very useful. So anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, come on back next week.